Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Heather McGee grew up a shy, quiet girl in the south side of Chicago with her head constantly buried in a book. Heather soon realized after being sent to boarding school in New England and being challenged by this new environment that she had something to say. This moment of realization propelled Heather into her career of public service. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Heather McGee recalls the process of writing her new book, The Sum of Us, how her upbringing in Chicago shaped her way of thinking, and the moment that she went from being an introvert to an extrovert. Heather? Hey! Hey, how are you? How are you? I don't know if you remember me, but we met, uh, I was I was young and strong when we met. It was a long time ago. <laughs> of course I do, and I've watched your meteoric rise since, and it's so cool. I'm really glad to be in this conversation with you today. Well, you know, you are my uh, best part of Meet the Press. There are times when I boycott Meet the Press, but I certainly do not boycott Meet the Press when my girl's on. So I love it when you're on. I always know good things are going to happen. So um, it's good to see you Thank here. Thank you. It is, um, you know, it's, I, that's one of the, both that and, and Bill Maher, I do with this like deep grain of salt where I'm like, I know I have to, I know I have to. Know I have to. <laughs> right, 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 right. Have you ever, have you ever watched any of the old clips of uh, Dr. King on uh, Meet the Press? Have you ever seen any of those? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. it's like transcendent. It's yeah. so cool. And it used to be such an important. Anyway, don't get me started. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, they, I, they need a whole new thing over there. They did. Well, you know, I grew up loving. Uh, I'm a little bit ahead of you uh, age wise. That's the way I'm going to frame it. I'm a little bit ahead of you. Uh, I grew up li- uh, watching uh, This Week with David Brinkley on ABC. And that was for a little kid in Miami who was just starting to love politics. It was a beautiful show. And um, uh, I don't think I've ever said this out loud, but part of the reason why I always get so excited when you're on Meet the Press is because you've been my Cokie Roberts. When I was growing up, Cokie Roberts was the only one 
who had original things to say on those shows. My dad and I felt like everybody else was kind of cookie cutter and kind of repeated the same stuff. But if I told him that Cokie Roberts was coming on, we could skip church in order to watch her because he would always say, she's got something to say. And so that's what we would do. So anyhow, I... uh, um, uh, I'm, it's nice to, uh, it's nice to see you this way, uh, again. So it's nice to see you this way again. It's great. It's yeah. so great, Carlos. What a joy. That's, I love that. Yeah. I love that. That's a really, I'll, I'll keep that with me. That's great. Please. I'll try to keep think, doing, saying original things while I'm on this book tour. I'm <laughs> just going to be <laughs> reciting a lot of the same stuff. <laughs> you know, hopefully you will have some fun with it. Where, uh, where's the book tour going to, are you going to do it all virtually or? So sad, Carlos. I mean, I'm like a total bookophile. Like I grew up, you know, laying down on carpets in dusty bookstores. And I've been dreaming my whole life of, you know, writing a book and signing books and going to bookstores. And it's all virtual. I'm like Tulsa, Dallas, Chicago, and all of it's in my dining room. Oh. And it's so sad. Oh. You know what? Maybe... But, 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 you know, maybe there will be some hidden magic in it. And it's nice to hear someone else who likes bookstores as much as I uh, did growing up. I liked bookstores. I liked libraries. And we actually had something uh, particularly nerdy called the Library Mobile. Have you ever seen a Library Mobile? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 He called them bookmobiles. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Where they had the kind of, ours had like the zebra look to it. We uh, we would have like black and white, like uh, stripes on it. But I really, um, somehow or another, my, my folks got me excited about books. And so I always, uh, I always love it. Was it, was it hard to write this? I've, I've never written a book. I've never written more than a long paper. Was it hard to write this book? Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> I think Dorothy Parker, someone wrote, someone said, I love having written a book. You know, that's like, that's exactly it. Like right right now feels great. I'm proud of it. I'm excited about it. America keeps like proving my thesis anew every day. But the time I spent writing it was pretty brutal. Like, it's just, it's like you and the page. It's a pretty lonely enterprise. Um, You know, it's all your demons, right? Because, you know, it's just... Yeah, it was intense. Where, um, and, and where, don't do it. Where, where, where did you do it? Did you do it on the couch? Did you do it in the bedroom? Did you do it at a certain spot in the table? Where, where did you Where did you do it? You know, I did a lot in my dining room. Um, I, I wrote it over the course of three years, and a lot of it was actually traveling, right? A lot of it was journeys to different parts of the country and interviewing people and all of that. So I did a lot in hotel rooms. Um, and then during, when the pandemic hit and I had a book deadline... We went to my mother's house um, so that my son could be taken care of by my mother and my husband. Um, And I spent, you know, six months in a basement at my mother's house writing this book. And I would like come up for a plate at lunch and go back down and then come up to sort of like kiss my son goodnight and go back down. And that's just terrible. (laughs) But you know what? You got it done. Years ago, my mom went back to grad school uh, with four little kids and a husband and she, when she tried to write her dissertation, she had bad writer's block. And um, she was on the phone with her sisters, and um, they all decided together, send the kids to us. And so uh, all four of us kids uh, went up to Cincinnati, and um, we spent kind of what was part of my fifth grade year 
uh, with my aunt in Cincinnati. And my mom was like, I've got 120 days, and that's it. And she got that doggone dissertation done, and we were so proud that's of her. That's a beautiful story. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the way it has to happen for real people, yeah. you know? I mean, it, you can't fit a book in. You can't take breaks. Right. You really can't. You can't be like, you know, I'll spend a week here, and then a month will pass. You, can't, you really have to get into a zone. Or else it takes you three days to remember what you've written and why and what you were planning to say. Anyway. Wow. So what is it, what is it about? What is the sum of us? Because I like the name. It conjured up all these different thoughts, and yet it was simple. It was a little bit like uh, Darren Aronofsky's first movie. I think it was called Pie. So there were, there were lots of... Uh, you know, there were lots of uh, potential meanings or interpretations of it. What, did, what was it? A, you know, why did you choose the sum of us? What was it about? Well, my husband will be very happy that you said that because it was his idea. We had, you know, a list of a bunch of different names. Um, my original title for the book, the sort of working title was Linked Fate, which is not that easy to flip slip off the tongue. <laughs> It is the idea, right? It's the idea that, in fact, our fates are intertwined and this illusion that white people and people of color are, you know, what happens to some of us is not going to ultimately be something that impacts us all, right? That we are, in fact, a collective as human beings and as people who are Americans as part of a society. And we have to let go of this idea of the thing that is the play on the word, which is the zero-sum game. The idea that progress for one group has to come at the expense of the other. The idea that there's sort of a fixed pie and that um, my gains can be your losses. And that mentality is, I think, what really ails us in this country. And so we wanted something that embodied the sort of collective spirit because really the answer in my book to everything is collective action. You know, we simply have got... We are facing challenges right now in our society that you know we cannot face alone. We cannot tackle these challenges alone, whether it's pandemics or inequality or climate change or mass migration. Like this is this is a time for all of us to you know row in the same direction. And racism divides us from each other and keeps us in levels of dysfunction that is holding us back from our, our true potential as a country. But what if people don't recognize it? It's funny, you know, earlier today I talked, you know, to that couple in St. Louis, the McCloskeys, uh, who had the guns oh, in front of that. For you. And I had a yeah. very interesting conversation with them. Um, they shared that they live in a, a mixed neighborhood. And so they say that, that some of their neighbors across the way are black. They're also mixed couples and, and that they say they live in a very mixed neighborhood. They, they, they said their client base, which surprised me, they said that their client base as lawyers was 85% black. I was surprised to hear that as well. Um, I, I, I was surprised. I may or may not be true, uh, but I was surprised. But as we had the conversation, as they shared all of this, I did not find them, for people who ha- who, who who apparently had an integrated existence, I was surprised at their worldview. I was surprised at their worldview. And it struck me in the end that they didn't have to have a different worldview, that they could afford financially and otherwise. To, so if people were to say, you know what, what you're saying is nice and all, <laughs> and, and at some level, certain people on the scale need collective action, but certain people who financially and otherwise you know, or or happen to have a weapon in the house, 
may not need collective action or who the chief of police may come over and help, quote unquote, protect their house. They may not feel like they need collective action. And so what do you say to those who's like, you know, you, you, you keep your socialized medicine, you keep your Green New Deal, like not interested. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's really the point is that there are people for whom the economic status quo is working out just fine. And ultimately, you know, those people are a very small sliver of the population. We see so many more of them, right, because of the social distance in our culture, right, the way that... Um, upper income people are so overrepresented in our media and in the halls of power and everything that we don't realize that, you know, 95% of the country is struggling in one way or another. And so, yes, the McCloskeys may feel like they don't need collective action. Like they can, when push comes to shove, be animated by a type of heightened you know, racial fear and white fear of change of, 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 the, of the people, right? Literally the people sort of marching through their neighborhood. Um, but I also would say that on, one, on the one hand, the people who are most benefiting from the economic status quo are those who actually, um, you know, are those oftentimes who are perpetuating this idea of the racial zero sum, right? I mean, you look at the right-wing propaganda networks that are, you know, constantly demonizing immigrants and scapegoating people of color, you know, those are all millionaires and billionaires, right? Those are bullies, you know, paid bullies in the corporate media. Um, you know, they're working for a, a plutocrat's propaganda, you know, outlet. They're doing fine. But even they when it comes to some of these fundamental issues, are not living in as healthy a society as they could if we were to overcome racism together. And I think about issues like the environment and climate change. Um, this is not, I ended up including in my book, the Some of Us, a chapter on the environment and climate change. Now, I'm an economics person. I you know, did not set out to write a book on the, um, to write a chapter on the environment. But ultimately, this country, the United States, is singular in our conservative movement's opposition to the very idea that climate change is human-made, right? Like other countries, they have a right and a left, and the right wants sort of market-based solutions to the problem. But in this country, the right is like, mm -mm, no problem. There's no problem here, nothing to see here. You know, we shouldn't do anything about it. You're, you're the problem, right? Um, so... Ultimately, we all live under the same sky, right? You can protect yourself to a certain degree from the worst excesses of climate change and environmental disaster. But, you know, the wildfires that race through California are hitting the barrios and the gated communities alike, right? We have got to recognize that some of these massive structural problems that are many, in many ways fed by racism and this idea that, um, that we're in a zero-sum racial competition, they're going to impact us all. You know, so I had a conversation and um, over the last, I would say, maybe it was four weeks ago, right before the holidays. And on one day, I had Deepak Chopra. This was after the election and after it became clear that, that uh, President-elect Biden won. And he said, you know what? 75 million of our fellow Americans wanted a different outcome. And so we should go to them and we should go to them with an open heart. And we should say, where are you? What do you want? What do you need? And we should go there open hand. 
And then I also had Reverend Al Sharpton, and he said, you know, my inclination is to do that, given who I am on a variety of things. He said, but the more time I've spent, the more I realize, while it may not be zero sum, there's a limited set of choices and resources. And so I, I can't afford to spend my time on folks whose hearts aren't open, whose minds aren't open, and whose pockets are filled. And so I need to, I need to embrace Stacey Abrams, meaning I need to turn out my people. I can't spend all the time on the so-called, you know, people in the middle. I need to focus on turning out, you know, my people. So what do you say to those folks who say, you know what, theoretically you're right, and so maybe 50 years, 100 years, maybe even 25 years from now, we can get to this question of the sum of us. But in the meantime, you know, we should, we should focus on the best of us, if you will, just using shorthand. And I realize I don't mean for that to be pejorative, but if someone said no problem with the sum of us in the long term, but in the medium term, given how significant some of these issues are, we really should, should tightly focus on the best of us. I think that's such a good question. I mean, I think when it comes to the math of 50 plus one of elections, yes, you've got to go with the people who are already with you. Because if you spend so much time trying to persuade folks who are not with you, not only will they probably not come along, right? You know, the Lincoln Project, which was, you know, a bunch of never Trump Republicans spent so much money trying to sort of bring more white Republicans, you know, into the never Trump fold. And it didn't work. A larger share of white Americans voted for Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016. And in fact, the majority of white Americans have voted against what they see as the party of civil rights, the Democratic Party, since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, right? So that's just the reality we're in. At the same time, you know, I feel strongly that there are people who are selling racist ideas, dehumanizing ideas, um, xenophobic ideas, um, you know, criminalizing poverty ideas for their own profit. And there are people who are buying those ideas. But I would rather hold accountable the people who are selling those ideas for their own profit and, you know, save my ire for them as opposed to the people who are desperate enough to buy those ideas. So when I think about, you know, do I want to create bridges with white Americans who, you know, spend a lot of time watching right wing media and consuming it, you know, I think. Yes, that would be great, but I've got to have a different story for them than the story, frankly, that they're hearing in the right-wing media, obviously, but also then they're often hearing from, you know, left activists, you know, which I include myself as one of them, because this, this Carlos, was the thing that I really wanted to get at with this book. There is a, a lie of a zero sum paradigm of racial competition. The idea that when you, that progress for one group has to come at the expense of the other. And of course that is like Trump's narrative, right? They're coming for your jobs, they're coming for your safety, they're coming for your family. You know, we gotta sort of kick them out, keep them at bay, um, protect our own, keep America great for us. But when racial justice advocates only talk about the benefits of racism to white people, the advantages it confers, and the disadvantages to people of color, isn't the message we are communicating that racism is good for white people, and so they should probably want to keep it going, right? Aren't, aren't we actually just emphasizing this idea that we are so inherently at odds that something that's good for one group, that's something that's terrible for one group, like mass incarceration, for example, 
or like um, the, you know, the the thing that is really at the heart, the sort of story at the heart of, of my book, which is when public swimming pools in the 1950s and 60s were drained by their white public officials rather than integrating them. They drained the public swimming pools rather than letting black kids swim too, right? That to me is, you know, and I, uh, a story that so many people who are black remember and grew up with. Um, and it's also a fitting parable for what's happened in our society. We used to be a society that invested in our people, the GI Bill, the interstate highway system, virtually free college at state schools, you know, for generations. And that level of public investment and support withered up after the civil rights movement said, yeah, we should have all those things, but for black and brown people too. That is when in the public opinion data, you see that white Americans turn their back on the idea of an active government in our lives. And I went to Montgomery, Alabama, to one of the dozens of places across the country where the town drained their public swimming pool rather than integrate it. They kept their entire parks and recreation department, Carlos, closed for 10 years. They sold off the animals in the zoo. They just said, we will have no nice things whatsoever for our entire community. And I went back to that, to the site and they, you know, they, they still have, they have reopened the parks department, right? There are parks in Montgomery, Alabama, but they never rebuilt that pool. And I feel like that in many ways is where we are today. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. 
Hey, my name is Jay Shetty and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Who do you think does a good job of communicating the message you're saying? Because it, it is interesting, whether we're talking about um, romantic relationships and, and famous books like Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus or whichever way it was, or whether we're talking about parent-child relationships or whether we're sometimes talking about, in this particular case, you know, racial relationships, there can be a real issue with how I say what I say, right? And Or what part of the story or how I frame the story who is good, do you think, at telling a story that people who might not immediately be on the side, white people who may not immediately be on the side of racial progress can hear? Who do you, who do you, think, who do you think is good at that or has exhibited some skill that we could all learn from? You know, I think it is, it's forever work to try to figure that out. Um, and the bar keeps moving. I think the, the fact that President Barack Obama was able to win, you know, a multiracial majority twice uh, in this country shows that he obviously could do something to resonate on a profound level with white Americans. Um, but he also was really hemmed in from talking about race explicitly. So that is the next level challenge, right? How do we both talk to white folks and bring them in coalition, but never hold back from telling the ugly racial truths in America. That's, I think, the moment we're in now. That's the challenge we have right now. Um, Reverend Dr. Barber, um, William Barber of North Carolina, who leads the Moral Mondays movement and the Poor People's Movement, he is extraordinary and has a real insistence and discipline that comes from a faith-based space that we have to come together in multiracial coalition. And that, in fact, you know, racism, one of the biggest lies of racism is that it serves most white people, right? Dr. King said, you can't eat Jim Crow. Um, you know, um, at Lyndon B. Johnson said, if you tell uh, the poorest white man that he is higher than a black man, you can pick his pocket, right? I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically the idea. So there are lots of people who have understood this and have tried to sort of invoke a class consciousness among white people who are faced with a choice. Do I choose my race or do I choose my class? And in the United States, so often, you know, race has trumped for, for white Americans. Um, but I was able to, in the course of my three-year journey to write The Some of Us, I was able to come across Americans who had chosen a different path. Hmm. And that's where I was left in a hopeful place, Carlos. And, you know, I finished writing the book 
um, you know, at the end of last summer, before the events of January 6th, 2021, you know, when in some ways, you know, the forces of racism and white supremacy and anti-democratic fervor, you know, really, you know, killed five people, came right up to the precipice of destroying what is good about this country. Um, and so, you know, the stakes have gotten higher since I finished writing the book, and yet I still hold on to that hope. Because I went to the town of Lewiston, Maine, which Maine is the whitest state in the country. It is the oldest state in the country. Um, it is the state where the young people are the least likely to be in school with a child of color, right? It is a white place. And it's a place where there were versions of Donald Trump before Donald Trump, where there was um, the governor, LePage, who said, you know, the problem is we've got these guys named Shifty and D-Money who come in and impregnate white girls. And then we've got a problem. I mean, it was like, you're saying this, you know, um, and this was not in like 1973. This was a few years ago. Um, but in the town of Lewiston, Maine, which is a dying mill town, a place where that kind of nostalgia about a time of American greatness could, you know, is really right there. There's also this influx of African Muslim refugees and immigrants who have remade the main street of Lewiston, Maine. Buildings that were vacant for years because the town was on the precipice of just completely shivering, um, because the town was on the precipice of, of completely dying because the mills had gone, the jobs had been shipped overseas. But these refugees, Muslim African refugees, you're black, you're a refugee and you're Muslim, right? Um, had come in and made a home for themselves and reanimated the main street and the town. And I talked to white Americans who were fully on the precipice of those diseases of despair that they talk about, right? The isolation, the opioid abuse, the suicide, all of that. And they said that they had basically in fellowship with the new Mainers, as they called them, it had sort of saved their lives because they'd given them a sense that there was hope for their town and that there was a future themselves and their communities. And that's the kind of thing that I think we can have so much of, which is a, a rebirth of the American spirit. It happens every few generations where we sort of have an invitation to come together and remake this country's culture. And I believe that at a time of record demographic change, it's upon us, but we've got to have a story that invites, frankly, white people into coalition with black and brown and indigenous people and says, you know what, this is our country. We can only tackle these challenges together. Let's do this. You know, it's so funny as I hear you say that a number of, of things are coming back to me. And I think one of the spaces where sometimes this happens is religion. I've seen a number of white churches uh, enlivened uh, by effectively integration. So churches that had very few people left and then Latino families or black families or other families come in and the church gets a second life. I've also seen this in some cases with Catholic uh, schools, uh, Catholic schools that were nearly empty in places like Newark get kind of second chance. And so part of me wonders whether the people who may have some expertise at um, a different kind of conversation may be religious figures. And so that when I see someone like Raphael Warnock, uh, uh, the minister, who just got elected uh, in Georgia, maybe maybe we will see more of him or maybe we need to see uh, uh, more. Uh, and you talked about Dr. Barber, uh, who's a minister as well. 
um, you make me wonder whether maybe there is some expertise there that might allow people a different kind of uh, a different kind of inclusion and a different kind of of, of possibility. What did you see gender wise? Did you see anything interesting in your travels about men versus women? And I mean that as broadly or as, as narrowly as you want it. Are, are we, are some of us more open or less open? Are we open to certain kinds of, uh, of efforts versus others? What, what, if anything, did you see as related to gender? It's such a good question. Um, the, the chapter that I wasn't intending to write, the chapter on climate change denialism and environmental injustice, took me down that route where I dug into the data. I said, OK, what's going on here? We have a conservative faction in the country that is opposed to taking any action on climate change. That conservative faction is about 90 percent white and it's more male than it is female. So what's going on here? I looked at data from Yale that showed that the majority of white Americans are in the doubtful, skeptical, not concerned camp around the threat of climate change, whereas the majority of black and brown Americans are in the alarmed and concerned camp around climate change. Um, And they basically say, you know, if it were only up to white people, we wouldn't really do anything about climate change with the current state of of public opinion. And then I dug even deeper into the data, and it turns out that there is a massive gender divide as well. So, you know, it's in many ways, Carlos, it's kind of deep, but it's about questions of risk, right? If I've lived my whole life in a industrialist capitalist order that benefits me, that I feel like, you know what, I'm, I've been told that I'm pretty well served by this order, right? You know, I see myself reflected in two thirds of the seats in government are, are, are um, held by white men who look like me. If this, if, you know, or over 90% of the CEOs in the country, you know, look like me, right? Then I feel like I want things to kind of stay the way they are. And anything you're saying that could interrupt that feels like a threat to my position. And also, if there's this reason to do it, that is this massive risk that is coming at us, right? Climate change could change everything. I'm going to bet that I'll be okay. I'm going to bet that because I've been okay throughout lots of other risks, right? Um, I stay on top. I be on top. I stay on top, right? And so that is one of those big gender divides where women even white women, even though white people are generally speaking um, less concerned about the climate change risks, white women are more sensitive to the idea that this could actually hurt me and mine and my family. Um, whereas there is a what the sociologists call identity protective cognition and um, uh, system justification among white men that says, like, I'm going to sort of protect the system that's kept me in this position, and I'm probably not actually that vulnerable to these threats. Mm. Who who among uh, uh, who among white men do you think has been among the most thoughtful on racial questions that you've come across, either recently or over time? But, but if you are right that we need everybody ultimately uh, collective action, as you called it, who have you found uh, uh, that we can learn from, look to, engage? You know, that is such a really good question. Um, This is not a famous person at all. But to your um, question uh, previously, what you were saying, um, this is not a famous person at all. But in my journey, I did talk to faith leaders. Because ultimately, the book is really about 
the way that racism keeps America from having nice things. And by nice things, I mean universal health care and, you know, affordable college and good public infrastructure that gets higher than a D plus from the American Society of Civil Engineers. And, you know, all of these things that we should have as the largest economy in the world, how racism stops us from having those nice things. But ultimately, all those economic issues are guided by a moral sense of what is right and what is wrong, of who deserves and what merit is. And so I went to talk to faith leaders from Jewish faith, from the Christian faith, and from the Muslim faith. Um, And I talked to a lot of white evangelicals who had really confronted the white supremacy in the white American church and how much the white church throughout our history has excused and in many cases supported the racist systems of you know, slavery or segregation um, and, and sort of conferred a sense of um, moral innocence on white Americans despite what they were doing in terms of the racial question you know, because they were part of this sort of community of, of, of Christians. And I talked to a young, young pastor in Chicago named Daniel Hill, um, who had created, who'd broken from one of the sort of big mega churches and created his own sort of kind of idyllic world that meets on Sundays and Wednesdays. I came in, I walked into the evangelical church, just a plain building in the middle of Chicago. And I tried to sit in the back because I didn't want to, you know, I was like, I'm not, not here to, you know pray or anything. I just am here to, to, to observe. So I sort of crept into the back. And what it turned out was that the back was where all the families and children were supposed to sit. And so I sat down, I kind of got myself settled. I was very sort of awkward being in the space, even though I, you know, love going to church, but it was just strange to sort of walk into some new church. And I sat down, I got myself settled and I looked around and it was the largest grouping of interracial families that I'd ever seen in one place. Because Pastor Daniel had created in this church called River City, um, out of what he said was an adherence to the true text of of the New Testament, a place that was so inviting to people of different races and backgrounds that multicultural families who otherwise would find themselves split on that Sunday, right, the most segregated hour in America, found in River City this place. And so we had all of these multiracial and inter, intercultural families. Um, and it was a beautiful thing. And I was really moved by the idea that, uh, you know, white evangelical, right, which we think of as like this reliable block against progress in so many ways, um, had been able to go back to their core faith and their core text and find a vision of you know, every creature that God has created should be welcome in the church, right? Every, every, every tongue, every nation, every tribe, right, as the text goes, should be welcome in the church. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself as the middle generation. 
I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk a little bit about you. I don't even know where you grew up. Where did you grow up? <laughs> so I was born on the south side of Chicago. Um, and, you know, I was born in 1980. So that means that this whole era of economic inequality where, you know, the job quality is getting worse, the good manufacturing jobs are being shipped overseas, you know, the schools and the parks and the library, t- the, excuse me, the schools and the parks and the libraries are losing funding. And there's just a sort of sense of like, you know, we're sort of pulling apart from each other economically. That's been my whole life. And that experience of, of seeing what was going on on the South side of Chicago when I was growing up really propelled me into public service and into questions about the economy. Why is it that so many people work so hard and take home so little and are always so stressed? And why does it seem like the political conversation doesn't see them, vilifies them, right? Either neglects them at best or abuses them and scapegoats them as at worst. Um, And so that's how I got into the work that I do, really trying to ask big, big why questions about the economy. And then 
getting into research and advocacy around solutions to inequality. And in some ways, Carlos, I feel like I just sort of ran up against a wall, which was I was bringing data and research and advocacy into a fight where because I wasn't seeing how racism was strengthening the hand that was beating us on all of these economic fights, that frankly, if we'd won, would have been good for everybody, including the majority of white people. Because I wasn't seeing how racism was strengthening the hand that beat us, I wasn't coming to the fight with both hands, right? I wasn't coming in as armed as I needed to be. And so that's why I set out on this journey to write the book, because I realized that if you don't understand how racism in our politics and our policy structures um, the economy, then you can't understand how to fix it. You, you say it's, it's that deep-seated. Take me back to you, though. Who was that girl uh, on the South Side at eight, nine years old? Was she loud? Was she quiet? Did she have a favorite TV show? What was she do? Who was she? I was such a nerd. I mean, my best friends were books. My best friends were books. I was a total nerd. I was so shy and introverted. Um, I really just didn't fit in. And, um, you know, I was like pretty good athletically, but, you know, just kind of hated the locker room. I was, um, I was just a nerd. I was a quiet nerd who would come home. Oftentimes I would stop at a bookstore on the way home and sit in the aisles on the floor cross-legged and read books. Um, the books, I, the bookstore ladies were so nice to let me basically just like treat the bookstore like a library and read the book without buying it and then leave. Um, and, you know, I was just really quiet. Um, and then I was sent away in middle school to boarding school in New England from Chicago um, and experienced for the first time, you know, real white culture, like really like, you know, the school was 90% white. Um, and that was just a huge wake up call for me and a real challenge. And yet I figured out, I think by being away from home, by being challenged in school for the first time, you know, coming from Chicago um, and North suburb um, public schools, I was really challenged by this private school that I went to. And I kind of the lights came on and I realized that I had something to say and that, you know, somebody might understand me if I just said it, you know, and, um, and now I'm like, you know, I love to throw parties. I am an extremely social extroverted person. I'm a true extrovert who gets energy from other people. It's just, it's funny to remember how I used to be. When was the moment do you think that if you can identify it, that's because that is so interesting to me because I've heard introverts who say, that I'm an introvert who's mastered how to be in public and to be around, but I'm still an introvert. But you're saying that you actually crossed over, that you went from introvert to extrovert. When did that happen? When did you, was there a moment? Was there a year? Was there a, an era in which you kind of clearly moved over? So I used to hide um, a lot, you know, just sort of socially and all of that. I became a theater nerd in, in middle school. And then I realized that if I was on stage, I could be, you know, I could take up space and I could sing and I could dance and I could do all these things. Um, but actually it wasn't until Carlos, I left the country for the first significant amount of time, my junior year in college. And I um, spent my junior year abroad in Italy where I finally just sort of saw myself. Um, and I actually remember a very specific moment. I was in a bathroom at a restaurant and I was washing my hands and I looked up and I saw this person in the mirror and I thought, well, she's beautiful. 
And, you know, it hadn't hurt that I'd had, you know, 20 men, you know, telling me I was beautiful in the street in Italian on my way to, to that restaurant, right? But it was like, not just like I was physically beautiful, but just like I was seen, right? Like I was, I was somebody, I, I had a, a life outside of, of, of my interior bookish life. Um, and, and, you know, kind of the rest is history. I mean, um, I'm, I'm now a very, I'm a, you know, person in public. I don't mind being, um, you know, in, you know, doing, giving speeches and doing all this. And, um, and my great, great love in life is throwing parties, which of course has made um, this year very, very, very um, socially challenging for me um, because there's nothing I love more than putting together a great party that brings hundreds of strangers together. Um, it's just like my, my highest Okay, joy. all right, and, all right, all right. So I, you have to tell me what would an epic Heather McGee party look like? Where would it be? Who gets to come? And where does the magic come from? I, lo- I love good parties. My parents growing up um, used to go to these great Caribbean parties. They would get invited. And uh, the Caribbeans in Miami, they would throw these, these great parties with lots of excitement. Uh, and I remember sometimes I would uh, hide in the back of the car. My parents didn't know that I was going with them. And so I would go... And I would watch, and it was amazing how excited everyone got. The music was playing. The food was great. They really planned out great parties. So I respect people who enjoy throwing a party and throw a great one. What would an epic Heather McGee party uh, look like, sound like, feel like? So last summer, uh, I was in Fort Greene Park in Brooklyn uh, with my my son, who was, you know, one and a half at the time, we all had masks on, you know, hadn't, you know, touched a stranger or talked to a stranger in, in months. And, um, and a guy walked by and he said, are you the woman who used to throw those castle parties? And it was like the highest compliment I could ever receive was that this guy remembered these parties that I used to throw in Brooklyn with my roommate and another friend who's a DJ and my roommate was a Russian gay guy and my um, DJ friend, you know, had all of these, uh, you know, friends and associates in the music world and hip hop and everything. And we would throw together these parties in this old, we called it the castle because it was this old limestone Crown Heights building that um, was, you know, really, really big. And, um, you know, every time we threw one of these parties, I would know like 30% of the people there. And like, that's a good party, right? Where you really, you're the host, but there are just people, there were people who came from down the street who left notes, you know, in my fridge saying, you know, I live around the corner and I just heard the music was so good. I had to come. Thanks for, thanks for letting us in, you know, (laughs) like that. Like it just was the kind of party where you just had a sense that everyone there was good people. They were absolutely not the kind of people that you would normally meet and hang out with and go to brunch with and all of that but that there was a sense of a trust and excitement, like this night is going to be great. I really miss that. Well, you know, I love that. And the fact that you even had a name for it, and they had a name for it, Castle, uh, is is great. And, you know, whenever people have kind of a name or a memory from it, I'm a horrific basketball player, but I'm an enthusiastic one. And, and I'm a skillful trash talker, if I do say so myself. And I... For some reason, I developed this thing that when I shoot the ball, I don't really know where it came from except I was missing all the time. And I tried to gather myself, and so I would kiss the ball. And I would, and, and in my mind, I'd say, if you put a little sugar on it, maybe it'll go in. And it became something that people remembered the way they say the castle. And so 
there would be people who would come up to me and say, are you the guy who kisses the ball? And, uh, and so I like, I like, I like something that, that is worthy of a name. I like that. That sounds like that's like, that's good fun. Um, talk to me if you would a little bit about where you think this country goes from here, because what I've been saying to a number of folks and to some of us may be the right time to talk about it is that if we not only look back, but we look forward. And if we say, you know what, America 1.0 had some good things, had a lot of things that we could have done better at. But what could America 2.0 look like? And what if the founders or the refounders weren't Hamilton and Washington and Jefferson, but they were McGee and Lakshmi and Gladwell and Coates and uh, Cuban and a whole suite of other people? What would they do in Philadelphia? What would they do at a reconstitutional convention or a new constitutional convention? What would you put on the table there if you were planning America's next 250 years? That is such a good question, Carlos. And I think that's where we are, truly. I mean, we are in... Um, in some ways, you know, I wish it felt a little bit different than the Reconstruction after the Civil War, right? I wish it didn't feel like there was a Confederate flag being marched through the Capitol building. Um, but we are in this moment right now where we are soon going to be a nation with no racial majority. And so we have to ask this nation, which was founded, you know, on a lie, on the belief in a hierarchy of human value. And that hierarchy of human value, that belief was propagated in order to justify an economic model that was built on stolen land and stolen labor. Those are no longer our values. Those are are no longer what is going to make us the richest as a society, right? This exploitation, this zero sum, this predation economy, it just isn't serving us anymore as a society, right? It's serving a narrow band. And in fact, that narrow band is richer than humans have ever been on the planet. But, you know, most Americans are struggling to make ends meet and to fulfill their dreams without debt. And so we've got to reconstitute. And what's exciting to me is that the idea of a multiracial democracy that takes a diverse room and says, you're ancestral strangers, right? You are people who... Um, have a tie to every community on the globe. And yet I'm going to give you, America says this, an equal say in setting the rules that govern all of our lives and that set opportunity for each other's children. That's a radical idea. And yet I think if you dig deep, Americans of all stripes can get really excited about that idea if they trust one another. And so one of the things that I think we need to do is first have a new set of standards for the kinds of stories that we consume, um, you know, that are called news, but right now have really spun off into a level of propaganda and divisiveness and detachment from the truth that is fundamentally needs to be reined in. And so we sort of need a new birth of the commons of our ideas and our facts and our knowledge. That's one piece of it. And then we know, you also need to experience the amazing potential in some ways, like the castle parties, of being in relationship and in fellowship and in celebration and working with people who are different from one another. This idea that, um, you know, if we actually have so much difference, right, as people who live in, in, you know, those real hubs of diversity, which are not just New York City, right, they're also Houston, right, those places where you really do have all the world's communities represented. What I found on my journey to write this book was that the people who had really dug into the potential 
of cross-racial solidarity, of working together with someone who is different from them in order to meet some common goal, whether it was organizing a, a car plant or saving homes from foreclosure or kicking out you know, a big polluter in their community, they revealed the common humanity that connects us. Right? Because if you're, if you're working with someone on something that really matters to you, your race and your culture you know, is not as important as your desire to, you know, clean up the air in your community, right? You connect on a level of value that's higher than what divides us and what keeps us apart. So I think we need to provide more of those experiences. Now we've got millions of people out of work. We've got young people who are looking at the society and saying, what's my path? I'm saddled with debt. College is now, a, you know, like a video game, like what's happening? There's so much work to be done. I think we need to have a massive jobs program in this country that particularly brings people in fellowship with people who are not like them, right? That, you know, whether you're building a park or, you know, um, creating a community center or whatever it is that is sort of the, you know, kind of New Deal era jobs program, you know, vaccinating people, et cetera, right? All of the different public health and, and infrastructure needs that our society has. Let's do those in teams that reflect America's diversity. Um, you know, in many ways, the army was that for many generations. I don't think we need to have to train people to kill find some way to be united by, you know, common purpose and higher purpose. That's one of the things that I would do to sort of reconstitute an American fabric and the fibers between us so that we can really take pride in how singular this American experiment of a multiracial democracy is um, and not shy from the truth about our history and about how pervasive racism is. My book is not about shying away from the truth, but it's also about expanding the aperture to show that in some ways, because racism is so pervasive, it impacts us all. You, you know, I love your idea here about working in teams and working in teams on things that are valuable in a jobs program. And someone who suggested something similar to us recently was Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO, former CEO of Goldman Sachs. And so to your point about the castle parties bringing, you know, all sorts of people together— I think there's a real power in kind of that opportunity to meet new people and have new experiences. And you do actually, although it may sound like I'm saying it in jest, part of me also wonders if part of what would move us together would be to have castle parties uh, all over the country where all kinds of people didn't just get together to work, but got together to have some fun and might see, as you said, some of the upside in being together, and uh, maybe some of the unexpected upside in, in being together, that there might be something in that moment that might make us more open in other moments to uh, to make progress. That's exactly right. One of the white um, guys that I talked to in, in Maine, um, he had you know, hit rock bottom with an opioid and, and alcohol addiction and had, as he's, his wife told him, you know, your new addiction is the community. Your new addiction is being in the community. And so he had really turned his life around in fellowship with these new Mainers, these African Muslim refugees. And he is one of the core organizers of an annual community unity barbecue. So he described this story of standing over this hot stove over summer and making Somali flatbreads with these hijabi women and their kids were all running around around together, you know, there's an insight there that you do have to celebrate together. You do have to have festivals and celebrations and reasons to trust one another, to enjoy one another. If you look at our right-wing media today, you would think that this country was just full of terrible people, right? I mean, the amount of negativity towards your fellow American that is driven 
um, by our media today is just how can we have a social fabric? How can we want to, you know, have higher taxes in order to fund our neighbors, you know, schools, right? I mean, it's, there's a sense where there's so much demonization, um, you know, and I wouldn't say it's the same on the right and the left, because in many ways, I think the right's demonization of people is about sort of who they are and ideas about what they do, whereas the left's demonization of people on the right is, you know, about, you know, actions taken, usually sort of punching down to people who have less power, um, whether it's, you know, children in, in cages or, um, or, you know, people in poverty. And, but I do think that the overall effect is that we have come to really sort of despise one another. And ultimately, like, that is no way to run a country. Um, that is no way to live. It's no way to lead. And I think we're seeing the impacts of that dysfunction everywhere. Um, I'm going to finish with you with something I call rapid fire, if you're okay with that. Okay. Got my water. Let's all right. Go. All right. For a book lover, what's your favorite book or at least one of your favorite books of all time? Okay, the thing I was just going to say um, was uh, Du Bois's Recon- Black Reconstruction, which is really nerdy, but it is the book that explains the most about exactly that moment when we had a chance to remake America and exactly how we failed. And I, I feel like I keep coming back to it because there's so many lessons for this moment. What color do you see when you close your eyes? Bright yellow. Interesting. What's your favorite place you've ever had a chance to visit in the world? Tanzania. Best nickname you've ever heard or had yourself? My dad calls me Spoobies, which I don't even know where it comes from. It makes no sense, but it's just what came to me. It's, it's my nickname for my dad. If you had not ended up going to law school and be working in politics and policy and, and nonprofits uh, and now uh, writing a book, what, what would have been a sliding doors alternate career? What else could have happened? I really think I could have been a teacher or even a childcare um, professional. I just, I do love seeing the lights go on in children's eyes. Uh, uh, what is your uh, best karaoke song? Me and Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin. Oh, that is outstanding. That is a great choice. A Texan, no less. Um, uh, um, uh, most delightful uh, celebrity meeting you've ever had. Who? Uh, what celebrity have you met? And for whatever reason... It was just a delightful, memorable, something good to you. On the day of Donald Trump's inauguration, I was flying from Washington, D.C. to L.A. I get in my seat. I'm depressed about the inauguration. I sit down. Common is sitting next to me. And I said, my ancestors, you are watching out for me. I love that. I love it. Talking about it. The whole flight. A, a, a fellow Chicagoan, no less. Yeah. Exactly. A fellow Chicagoan, one of the sexiest men alive. You know, commiserating about Donald Trump's, you know, presidency that was about to start. I was like, I am okay. I love that. I love that. Uh, both of you have uh, have PhD moms, I think, and so uh, 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 that was an interesting duo to be uh, to be sitting next to each other. Um, best advice you've ever gotten or given about dreaming fearlessly? Put you know that white, wealthy, straight man that you've been in a meeting with who just has no fear about giving his opinions and, you know, creating bold ideas and asking for exactly what he wants, put him on your shoulder in your next meeting and think, what would he say? And what would he do if he had no expectation of rejection or failure or somebody undermining him? Um, you know, let him talk to you for a little bit uh, and be your hype man. That's, 
that's the best that's the best uh advice i've ever um, gotten from someone about how to you know get rid of the imposter syndrome and the doubt that so often comes from being an outsider last question uh the movie that moves you your favorite movie the color purple didn't expect that and favorite character in that movie was suge suge avery suge avery absolutely um you know this fabulous woman who you know had had all the um the power and the glamour um was trapped you know in many ways but also gave so much transformative love to the main character you know that was that was that she's my favorite character well, uh, uh, me and Mrs. McGee, uh, thank you so much for, uh, uh, for uh, giving me this time. Well, you know, it's so interesting. You talk about getting to sit next to Common on a flight, and um, this was a really nice uh, end to Friday afternoon. So thank you for, uh, for taking me on a good trip. Oh, thank you, Carlos. Thanks for everything you do. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends to find us on the iHeart Podcast app and Apple Podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. And I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.